Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome. I'm Graham Henderson, the Chief Executive of Pert in the City. It's a great pleasure to welcome you this evening on behalf of Perth in the City and our partners, St Paul's Cathedral, to this event celebrating the life and work of John Donne. Poetry is important, and your numbers will testify to that. Uh, Perton City is a charity that makes new connections for poetry and promotes a love of poetry amongst new audiences. Tonight, I'm proud to say, is the largest event ever held by the charity, and we're extremely proud to be hosting it here in this extraordinary setting. We're delighted to be working with St Paul's Cathedral, of course, um, and where better to celebrate the life and work of John Donne. This event is a highlight of Perton City's pre-Olympics series. And uh, in this Olympic year, poetry is playing a very important part. It's a uh, uh, centre stage in the Olympic Village uh, with poetry on all sorts of walls and buildings. Uh, and uh, we, we've got a programme which is designed to celebrate uh, poetry and make it accessible to everyone uh, in the run-up to the Games. John Donne's influence is still felt strongly, both here in the cathedral, but also in the wider world. And uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing uh, some poetry, music, and talk about John Donne this evening. This event, and the series of which it's uh, a part, has been awarded an Inspire Mark, so we are officially part of the run-up to the Olympics. To help us celebrate uh, Dunn this evening, Perton City is delighted to welcome some fantastic speakers, readers and musicians. To introduce them, I would like to hand over to Mark Oakley, the canon treasurer of St Paul's Cathedral, uh, who himself is an expert on poetry and has written widely on issues of faith, poetry and literature. One small housekeeping point. Uh, you are welcome to applaud in the cathedral, uh, I understand, but I think uh, for practical reasons it would be wonderful if you could keep your applause till the very end um, because we have a lot of poetry to get through and a lot of music to get through. Uh, so if you can withhold your enthusiasm till the very end, that would be uh, very grateful. Thank you very much and enjoy the evening. Well, good evening. My name is Mark Oakley and as you may have guest, I work here at the cathedral as one of the canons, and it is my enormous pleasure to welcome you all here this evening. It's fantastic to see so many of you here. We are thrilled at tonight's partnership with Poet in the City, and we hope that it is only the first of many joint ventures. I have to say, nothing gives me more personal pleasure than to have an audience of poetry lovers in the cathedral. As congregations go, in the words of Bruce Forsyth, you're my favorite. <laughs> it's a great pleasure to welcome tonight's speakers. Peter McCulloch is professor of English and fellow of Lincoln College, Oxford. He specializes in the religious literature and history of Elizabethan and early Stuart England and is general editor of the forthcoming 16-volume scholarly edition of John Donne's Sermons from Oxford University Press. 
He's also a lay canon here at St. Paul's with a chapter brief for the cathedral's history and its interpretation. Joe Shapcott is a poet, editor, and lecturer, and is currently president of the Poetry Society. She has received many poetry and literary awards, and was indeed awarded the Queen's Gold Medal for Poetry last year. And her latest remarkable collection of poems of mutability has been quite rightly universally praised and admired. Mary Morrissey is reader in English at the University of Reading and a leading expert on sermons and other religious writing in early modern London and has recently published a definitive account of preaching at Paul's Cross. She's editing Dunn's Paul's Cross and other civic sermons for that new Oxford edition. We also welcome tonight Andrew Carwood, who will sing this evening. Andrew is the Cathedral's Director of Music and the award-winning director of the Cardinal's Music, with whom he has made over 30 recordings of Renaissance music. He's particularly known as a singer for his performance of the English repertoire, and this evening he will sing Benjamin Britten's settings of Dunn's sonnets. He will be accompanied by the pianist Matthew Martin, a composer and the organist of Brompton Oratory. And tonight's poetry will be read by two marvellous actors, Rosalie Jorda and Tom Deverson. So can I now ask our first speaker, Peter McCulloch, to set the scene, introducing us to the man whose life and work we are here to celebrate. Thank you, Mark, and good evening. Both the venue and the charitable sponsor of this evening's gathering offer a serendipitous way to summarize the rather large amount we actually know about Dunn's life and works. And that is that Dunn himself was a poet in the city, a poet of the city, a poet of London. Lovers of his poetry, his writing, will know how fond Dunn was of the image of the circle, those globes, those compasses. And this city was always and urgently the compass point to which his heart and his wit turned. We sit tonight very near the spot where the fixed leg of his life's compass both began and ended. He was born only two streets away, in Bread Street, just behind what is now New Change. And he died just outside the windows to my left in the deanery of Old St. Paul's. And his body was laid to rest in the dean's aisle of the old cathedral. And the startling monument to him, a full-length effigy in marble for which he posed in his last days, was the only monument from the old cathedral to survive the great fire of 1666 intact. It now stands in the South Choir aisle behind me in an exactly corresponding position to where it stood in Old St. Paul's. 
And if I could just interject that although numbers are great, it would seem a crime, if there's anyone here who's not ever seen Dunn's Monument, um, to take advantage of being here on this occasion to step back behind the grates there, which the vergers have very kindly said that they will open after the service. We don't have facilities to issue timed tickets, so perhaps a quick look uh, and you'll be very welcome. That birth in Bread Street happened sometime in the first six months of 1572 in the house of a senior John Dunn. To say that John Dunn Sr. was an ironmonger can perhaps give the wrong impression, for he was no small-scale retailer of nails and chains, but a warden of the ironmonger's company, and thus a member of the city's ruling merchant elite, who, when he died, left an inheritance that would qualify his then three-year-old son with the status of gentleman when he reached his majority. Dunn, the junior, soon had a stepfather who was president of the Royal College of Physicians, and Dunn's mother, Elizabeth, would marry a third time before her son was 18. What all three of these fathers and Dunn's mother had in common was their adherence to outlawed Roman Catholicism, the faith in which Dunn was very firmly raised, and the imagery of which saturates his poetry, both secular and religious. Dunn's first departure from London was to study at Oxford, and both his early matriculation at the age of 14 and his very soon leaving without a degree was probably due to a need to evade the loyalty oaths to the Protestant Church of England that were required of any student once they reached the age of 16. He may then have studied unofficially at Cambridge or made the first of several journeys abroad, but by 1591, just shy of 20 years old, he returned to his native city to join the vibrant, even febrile world of the Inns of Court, first Thavies Inn in High Holborn, and in the following year, Lincoln's Inn. The Inns were absolutely vital to Dunn's intellectual and poetic development. Although some study of law did take place, to many young men, like Dunn, the Inns were not a place to study for the bar necessarily, but a place where cleverness and wit were honed and displayed to attract the eye of patrons and employers for careers at Whitehall. The Inns were also a haven for many things outside the bounds of rigid conformity. Secret Catholicism, skeptical free-thinking philosophy, outrageous foreign fashion, avant-garde poetry, and of course, sexual daring. Outside of Oxbridge, the Inns were England's most homosocial society, a place brimming with youthful quantities of testosterone, which found outlets perhaps in exploits in nearby houses of ill repute, but probably more often in the imagined promiscuity of erotic poetry. It was in this context and for an exclusive coterie audience of wittily competitive men that Dunn wrote the large majority of the verse for which he is now most famous. Another pastime of Inns men was frequenting that other den of iniquity, the theatre. Allusions to Marlowe's Dr. Faustus can be found in Dunn's sermons. But the lyric poetry shows even more how Dunn mastered at an early age the dramatist's ability to imagine himself into the brain and body of innumerable fictional speakers and to write colloquially and even to write convincing dialogue 
across the hitherto smooth, honeyed grain of Elizabethan verse. And this was categorically not poetry written for print, but poetry to be furtively shared in manuscript among trusted friends one wanted to impress. And it fed upon the seething, metropolitan culture that was available nowhere else in England. And it is that London culture, distilled and concentrated in the culture of the inns, that gives Dunn's poetry that heady mix of acute observation, sensual indulgence, colloquial vigor, intellectual erudition, legal technicality, and yes, playful religious blasphemy, all of which we celebrate here today. After coming into his inheritance, Dunn took even more daring risks, not least in joining the swashbuckling voyages of the Earl of Essex against Catholic Spain, and he landed a top job as secretary to Queen Elizabeth's Lord Chancellor, Sir Thomas Edgerton. But it was at that point that Dunn took a risk too far. Not just marrying the boss's daughter, but clandestinely marrying the niece and ward of his boss's second wife. The furious reaction of both Edgerton and of Anne Moore's father exposed Dunn to yet another side of London. It's dangerous, sometimes fatal prisons the crippling cost of lawsuits, unemployment, and poverty. It exiled him from London to retreats offered by sympathetic friends in Surrey, which, judging from Dunn's letters of the time, might as well have been Siberia. Children came in rapid succession to John and Anne, first in Perford and then in a small two-story cottage in Mitcham, which he variously described as his hospital, his prison, or even his dungeon. Occasional glimpses of something happier can be found in the letters, but even they are tinged with regret and guilt for the fate he had brought upon the wife he loved. I write from the fireside in my parlor, says one, and in the noise of three gamesome children, and by the side of her whom, because I have transplanted to a wretched fortune, I must labor to disguise that from her by all such honest devices as giving her my company and discourse. Therefore, I steal from her all the time which I give to this letter. Still, he managed to keep digs in the strand to which he would sneak, his word, out from Surrey to fruitlessly seek employment and to take consolation in the company of literary friends. And Dunn perhaps needs to be remembered more as the great poet of friendship that he is. And indeed, it was friendship which defined London for him. As he said to one cherished correspondent, I do not make account that I am come to London when I get within the wall. That which makes it London is the meeting of friends. And to another, your going away hath made London a dead carcass. Wheresoever you are, there is London enough. And it was in these years of exile, years of introspection and support from family and friends, that the haunting holy sonnets date. The relief of repatriation to London, though, finally came in 1612, with a fine house rented from a patron in Drury Lane in what is now Aldwych, near the King's Way. And preferment came, too, though from a quarter he had actively resisted for years, the church. Encouraged not least by King James, Dunn was ordained deacon and priest by the Bishop of London in St. Paul's in January 1615. 
and without further ado was made a royal chaplain, and his royal patron even squeezed out of the Cambridge heads of house a begrudged honorary doctorate for his new prize preacher, transforming him into Dr. Dunn. He received sinecures in Surrey and Hertfordshire, but from 1616, his intellectual and professional niche was as reader in divinity, or as it were, house preacher, at his old haunt, Lincoln's Inn, though this time as an astute senior moralist who had that secret weapon of all good tutors, first-hand knowledge of what his students were getting up to. Dunn's power as a preacher and his favor with the king saw his career crowned with appointment as dean of his city's cathedral church in 1621, where he served until his death in 1631, something which must have been unimaginable in that recusant household in the shadow of St. Paul's where he had been born 50 years before. Where his immediate predecessors as dean here had made their mark by reviving liturgical ceremonies and beautifying the cathedral, Dunn adorned it with his language. In sermons which contained some of the most powerful prose in English, and we're fortunate that tonight the definition of poet in the city can be stretched to include this aspect of Dunn. For it is too easy to separate Dunn the poet and Dunn the preacher by giving in too easily to the Jack Dunn, Dr. Dunn dichotomy that Isaac Walton in his biography used to explain away the early erotic poetry. For surely the thrill of Dunn is that those great contraries meet in one. And like the paradoxes which are the hallmark of his verse are, upon close consideration, not contraries at all, but revelations. Flesh and spirit, confidence and doubt all meet in this same one man and cohabit in his writing. Walton said that Dunn could not leave his, behind his beloved London to which place he had a natural inclination. But the inscription that Dunn himself wrote for his effigy says that he looks eum cuius nomen est oriens, to him whose name is East. Dunn loved London with every fiber of his body, but throughout his life he longed for another city even more. As he told the congregation at his first sermon here at St. Paul's, with a characteristic mixture of pained regret and longing joy, I shall rise from the grave and never miss this city, which shall be nowhere, for I shall see the city of God, the new Jerusalem. Woman's Constancy. Now thou hast loved me one whole day, tomorrow, when thou leavest, what wilt thou say? Wilt thou then antedate some new-made vow, or say that now we are not just those persons which we were, or that oaths made in reverential fear of love and his wrath any may forswear? Or, as true deaths, true marriages untie, so lovers' contracts, images of those, bind but till sleep, death's image, them unloose? 
or your own end to justify for having purposed change and falsehood, you can have no way but falsehood to be true? <laughs> Vain lunatic, against these scapes I could dispute and conquer if I would, which I abstain to do, for by tomorrow I may think so too. A defense of women's inconstancy. That women are inconstant, I with any man confess. But that inconstancy is a bad quality, I against any man will argue. The heavens themselves continually turn, the stars move, the moon changeth, fire whirleth, air flieth, water ebbs and flows, time stays not. So in men, they that have the most reason are the most alterable in their designs. Therefore women, changing more than men, have also more reason. They cannot be immutable like stocks, like stones, like the earth's dull center. Every woman is a science. For he that plods upon a woman all his life long shall at length find himself short of the knowledge of her. Women are born to take down the pride of wit and ambition of wisdom, making fools wise, wise men fools, witty men stark mad, being confounded with their uncertainties. The greatest scholar, if he once take a wife, is found all unlearned, and all is by inconstancy. To conclude, therefore, this name of inconstancy, which had been so much poisoned with slanders, ought to be changed into variety, for the which the world is so delightful, and a woman for that, the most delightful thing in the world. Epigram on a courtesan. Thy flattering picture, lady, is like thee only in this that you both painted be. Love's diet. To what a cumbersome unwieldiness and burdenous corpulence my love had grown but that I did, to make it less and keep it in proportion, give it a diet, made it feed upon that which love worst endures, discretion. Above one sigh a day I allowed him not, of which my fortune and my faults had part. And if sometimes by stealth he got a she-sigh from my mistress' heart and thought to feast on that, I let him see t'was neither very sound nor meant to me. Whatever he would dictate, I writ that, but burnt my letters. When she writ to me, and that that favour made him fat, I said, if any title be conveyed by this, ah, what doth it avail to be the fortieth name in an entail? Thus I reclaimed my buzzard love to fly at what and when and how and where I choose. Now negligent of sport I lie, and now, as other falconers use, 
I spring a mistress, swear, write, sigh, and weep. And the game killed or lost, go talk and sleep. Break of day. Tis true, tis day, what though it be. Oh, wilt thou therefore rise from me? Why should we rise? Because tis light? Did we lie down because twas night? Love which in spite of darkness brought us hither should, in despite of light, keep us together. Must business thee from hence remove? Oh, that's the worst disease of love. The poor, the foul, the false love can admit, but not the busied man. He which hath business and makes love doth do such wrong as when a married man doth woo. The broken heart. He is stark mad who ever says that he hath been in love an hour, yet not that love so soon decays, but that it can ten in less space devour. Who will believe me if I swear that I have had the plague a year? Who would not laugh at me if I should say, I saw a flask of powder burn a day? Ah, what a trifle is a heart if once into love's hands it come. All other griefs allow a part to other griefs and ask themselves but some. They come to us, but us love draws. He swallows us and never chores. By him, as by chained shot, whole ranks do die. He is the tyrant pike, our hearts the fry. If t'were not so, what did become of my heart when I first saw thee? I brought a heart into the room, but from the room I carried none with me. If it had gone to thee, I know mine would have taught thine heart to show more pity unto me. But love, alas, at one first blow did shiver it as glass. Yet nothing can to nothing fall, nor any place be empty quite. Therefore I think my breast hath all those pieces still, though they be not unite. And now, as broken glasses show a hundred lesser faces, so my rags of heart can like, wish, and adore. But after one such love, can love no more. The Triple Fool I am two fools, I know, for loving and for saying so in whining poetry. But where's that wise man that would not be I if she would not deny? Then, as the earth's inward, narrow, crooked lanes do purge sea water's fretful salt away, I thought if I could draw my pains through rhyme's vexation, I should them allay. Grief brought to numbers cannot be so fierce, for he tames it that fetters it in verse. But when I have done so, some man, 
his art and voice to show, doth set and sing my pain, and by delighting many, frees again grief which verse did restrain. To love and grief, tribute of verse belongs, but not of such as pleases when tis read. Both are increased by such songs, for both their triumphs so are published. And I, which was two fools, do so grow three, who are a little wise, the best fools be. Summoned by sickness, death's herald and champion. Thou art like a pilgrim, which a broad hath dumb treason and durst not turn to whence he's fled or like a thief which till death's doom be read wisheth himself delivered from prison but damned and hailed to execution wisheth that still he might be Imprisoned, yet grace, if thou repent, thou canst not lack, but who shall give thee that grace?
I speak not as a scholar of Donne, but as a fan. He is a poet who's worked deeply within me since I was a teenager. Um, so please treat what I'm about to read as my tribute. Isaac Walton tells an anecdote about an event after Donne's funeral. He says this, the next day after his burial, some unknown friend, someone of the many lovers and admirers of his virtue and learning, writ this epitaph with coal on the wall over his grave. Reader, I am to let thee know, Dunn's body only lies below. For could the grave his soul comprise, earth would be richer than the skies. In these two small couplets, the unknown friend, clearly a poet or perhaps a would-be poet, has stumbled into Donne's poetics as well as his personal merits. John Donne, he wishes, after death, might mingle via his soul with the earth to, of course, the earth's enormous benefit. Where then does he, John Donne, soul and body end? And where does the earth begin? This, for me, is a central question in Donne's poetry, and perhaps why his readers are exhilarated page after page by the sheer extent of the poems, their intellectual reach, their passion, all of which is best measured in light years rather than in metrical feet, from a pinpoint on a human skin. Mark but this little flea, to the whole universe, off with that girdle like heaven's zones glistering. Dunn's fluid sense of self in this respect is as much poetic as philosophical or theological. Poets have long been aware of the very thin stretch of cells separating this body from this world celebrating the dialogue between difference and connectedness, inside and outside. When John Donne's narrator says to his mistress, as souls unbodied, bodies unclothed must be to taste whole joys, this same question is implied. Where do I end and where does the other, in this case the lover, begin? This time, it's the physical connection of lovemaking that allows the individual to travel outside the borders of the self. And Dunn's geographical imagery only serves to make this clearer. 
Oh, my America, my newfound land, my kingdom, safeliest when with one man manned. My mine of precious stones, my empery, how blessed am I in this discovering thee. To enter in these bonds is to be free. Then, where my hand is set, my seal shall be. Full nakedness, all joys are due to thee. As souls unbodied, bodies unclothed must be to taste whole joys. As his hands travel over his mistress's body, behind, before, above, between, below, the speaker voyages outside himself, taking a journey not just outside the borders of his own skin, but into a whole newfound land. From neuroscience and cognitive science, we now understand that our thinking is embodied, that the concept of mind-body duality no longer provides a satisfactory account of the way we perceive. And this is a disappointment to people like me who read with pleasure that cartoon, The Numbskulls, in the Beano, where the little creatures were in the brain operating everything else. Apparently, that's not how it is. But the new idea is important for poets, actually something they've long known, especially its implications for language, that the images we invent are intrinsic to the way we see the world, and that the poetic self is contingent, weaving in and out of language through the borders of skin and otherness. According to thinkers like the American George Lakoff, Metaphors actually structure the way we think about ourselves and the way we invent the language we use. Conversely, our metaphors depend on our awareness of ourselves as embodied individuals in the world. Just to give you an example, think of those kind of hidden metaphors we use for how we feel, and we make them spatial. They're in the space that we inhabit. So, for example, I might say, I feel up today, or... Conversely, I feel down, or that the future is ahead or behind. All of this puts poetry right at the center of our bodily experience, and it's why Dunn's intense focus on the spatial through his language puts his work right at the heart of such contemporary discussions. License my roving hands and let them go behind, before, above, between, below. But Dunn's voyages outside the boundaries of the self into his mistress going to bed don't necessarily fuse him, mind and body, with his lover. The metaphorical world he evokes is of power relations, emperor, slave, land-claiming explorer, teacher, all dependent on dualities, not unity. The possibility of fusion through love is teased at in The Flea, though it is never realized. The flea, pampered, swells with one blood made of two, and this, alas, is more than we would do. In The Good Morrow, the question as to whether the entity of the single self can be breached by love, uh, to coin the Spice Girls, to become one, is more problematic. 
The poem seems at every turn to undermine a surface call for unity. The two hemispheres of the world which represent the lovers do not add up to a whole. Where can we find two better hemispheres without sharp north, without declining west? So surely we're missing a quarter here. He goes on to say, let sea discoverers to new worlds have gone. Let maps to others, worlds on worlds have shown. Let us possess our one world, each hath one and is one. There's a tension here that I don't believe is resolved in the poem. Even the rhythm in the last line creates uncertainty. Each hath one and is one. The iambic rhythm wants to stress hath in hath one, and then one and is one, though there's a nice tension in that second occurrence with the natural speech rhythm desperately moving towards is one. The critic Redpath says of the line, quite rightly, that its meaning is not so clear as it might at first seem. Is there one world or are there two? Some arguments about this poem call on theology to suggest unity, but the poem doesn't rest naturally towards any simple declaration. Its beauty resides in the question unanswered, the strong sense of the mind debating the alternatives, that mind in action, the illusion of real-time thought as the poem progresses. A similar question remains unresolved in a valediction forbidding mourning, where if the two souls of the lovers are to be called one, it's only by analogy, an astonishing analogy at that, with a single object, but one which bifurcates, uh, those famous twin compasses. Our two souls, therefore, which are one, though I must go, endure not yet a breach, but an expansion, like gold to airy thinness beat. If they be two, they are two, so as stiff twin compasses are two. Thy soul, the fixed foot, makes no show to move, but doth, if t'other do. This unresolved tension, I think, moves all over Dunn's secular work. Um, it's the question as to whether the gap between the self and the other can be vaulted. And answers are sought in the corporeal, the physical love, and in theology. But perhaps these aren't the best place to look. Is poetry itself the single answer? And is this true of Dunn in particular? I want to use the novelist David Lodge to help us here. He calls on a concept known as qualia in a way that might be useful. Qualia is a key term in contemporary consciousness studies, meaning the specific nature of our subjective experience of the world. And I think Dunn wouldn't mind me doing a small excursion into science here. Concrete examples of qualia are very individual, and they might be, to me, the smell of freshly ground coffee, or what an apple tastes like. 
Since these experiences are so particular, relying on individual sensory awareness, is it then ever possible to communicate what we understand of the external world through our five senses to any other individual? Lyric poetry may be the singular way we have to do this, and that's its paradox. Dunn's poetry, more than perhaps any, gives us this singularity, the illusion that we can hear, see, feel, taste, and smell what he does, and more than that, experience the sinewy tracks of his thoughts as if they were our own at the same time the thought first occurred. Pity my picture burning in thine eye, he writes, my picture drowned in a transparent tear. Better than a picture, we know his pain. Feel it better than an MRI scan, and we witness the movement of his thoughts until they become our own. Finally, he reminds us that it's possible to feel love, passion, excitement for an idea, for a line of thought, just as it is for a place or even perhaps a person. And he was the first poet, I think, that taught me how you could love an idea. The token. Send me some token that my hope may live or that my easeless thoughts may sleep and rest. Send me some honey to make sweet my hive that in my passion I may hope the best. I beg no ribbon wrought with thine own hands to knit our loves in the fantastic strain of new-touched youth, nor a ring to show the stands of our affection that as that's round and plain so should our loves meet in simplicity. No, nor the corals which thy wrist enfold, laced up together in congruity, to show our thoughts should rest in the same hold. No, nor thy picture, though most gracious and most desired, because best like the best. Nor witty lines which are most copious within the writings which thou hast addressed. Send me nor this, nor that, to increase my store, but swear thou think'st I love thee, and no more. Love's growth. I scarce believe my love to be so pure as I had thought it was, because it doth endure vicissitude and season as the grass. Methinks I lied all winter when I swore my love was infinite, if spring make it more. And yet, no greater, but more eminent love by the spring is grown. As in the firmament, stars by the sun are not enlarged, but shown. Gentle love deeds as blossom on a bough, from love's awakened root do bud out now. If, as in water stirred, more circles be produced by one, love such additions take, those like so many spheres but one heaven make, for they are all concentric unto thee. And though each spring do add to love new heat, 
as princes do in times of action, get new taxes <laughs> and remit them not in peace, no winter shall abate the spring's increase. I wonder by my troth what thou and I did till we loved. Were we not weaned till then, but sucked on country pleasures childishly, or snorted we in the seventh... Hold your tongue and let me love. Off with that girdle, like heaven's own glistering, but a far fairer world encompassing. Unlace yourself, for that harmonious chime tells me from you that now it is bedtime. Now off with those shoes, and then safely tread in this love's hallowed temple, this soft bed, license my roving hands and let them go before, behind, above, between, below. Oh, my America, my newfound land, my kingdom safeliest when with one man manned, my mine of precious stones, my empery, how blessed am I in this discovering thee. To enter in these bonds is to be free. Then where my hand is set, my seal shall be. Full nakedness, all joys are due to thee. As souls unbodied, bodies unclothed must be to taste whole joys. The sun rising. Busy old fool, unruly sun. Why dost thou thus through windows and through curtains call on us? Muster thy motions, lovers' seasons run? Saucy, pedantic wretch. Go chide late schoolboys and sour apprentices. Go tell court huntsmen that the king will ride. Call country ants to harvest offices. Love all alike, no season knows, nor clime, nor hours, Days, months, which are the rags of time. Thy beams, so reverent and strong, why shouldst thou think I could eclipse and cloud them with a wink, but that I would not lose her sight so long? If her eyes have not blinded thine, look, and tomorrow late tell me whether both the Indias of spice and mine be where thou left'st them, or lie here with me. Ask for those kings whom thou sawest yesterday, and thou shalt hear, all here in one bed lay. She is all states, and all princes, I, nothing else is. Princes do but play us, compared to this, all honours mimic, all wealth alchemy. Thou, son, art half as happy as we, in that the world's contracted thus, Thine age asks ease, and since thy duties be to warm the world, that's done in warming us. Shine here to us, and thou art everywhere. This bed thy center is, these walls thy sphere. A valediction forbidding morning. As virtuous men pass mildly away and whisper to their souls to go, whilst some of their sad friends do say the breath goes now, and some say no. 
So let us melt and make no noise. No tear floods, nor sigh tempests move. It were profanation of our joys to tell the laity our love. Dull sublunary lovers love, whose soul is sense, cannot admit absence, because it doth remove those things which elemented it. But we, by a love so much refined that ourselves know not what it is, inter-assured of the mind, care less, eyes, lips, and hands to miss. Our two souls, therefore, which are one, though I must go, endure not yet a breach, but an expansion, like gold to airy thinness beat. If they be two, they are two, so a stiff twin compasses are two. Thy soul, the fixed foot, makes no show to move, but doth, if the other do. And though it in the center sit, yet when the other far doth roam, it leans and hearkens after it, and grows erect as that comes home. Such wilt thou be to me, who must, like the other foot, obliquely run. Thy firmness draws my circle just, and makes me end where I begun. And angels, things 
Goodness, there are a lot of people here. The 20th century Irish poet Patrick Kavanagh wrote of Dublin's Grand Canal, of all places, no one will speak in prose who finds his way to these Parnassian islands. I think many people nowadays share this assumption that prose is a medium insufficiently vehement to express the most vivid experiences. Dunn's contemporaries did not think so. They valued sermons very highly. An hour was a standard length, and it was not uncommon to hear two sermons on Sundays. I think even regular churchgoers nowadays might wonder at this enthusiasm for preaching. My apologies to the preachers in the room. Contemporaries of Don do tell us why they valued preaching so highly. For them, a sermon was an opportunity to understand the Bible better. And this access to the Bible was critical to popular understanding of what the Reformation meant. But the event itself was also vital. The preacher's voice and words, combined with the prayerful attention of the congregation, provided an opportunity to be moved to greater commitment to God and neighbor. Dunn never lost his initial sense of the greatness and the grandeur of that task. In To Mr. Tillman, after his taking orders, Dunn wrote that the preacher was someone assigned to bring man to heaven and heaven again to man. When Dunn stood in the pulpit, he was mindful of three things he had to do. The first was to explicate the short passage from scripture about which he spoke. Explicating meant unfolding, opening out to reveal hidden in the multiple layers of meaning that the words of the Bible contained some advice or warning or comfort that would address the concerns of those listening. Then, Don had to show his hearers what those words should mean to them. He applied the lessons of scripture to himself and to his hearers. In a sermon preached at Whitehall, from which we will hear later, he tells us the gospel in the word should work upon my understanding and my faith and my conscience. In our extract from the Easter Spittal Sermon, for example, Don addresses London's citizens, the business community from which he was born, men and women who knew how volatile prosperity could be in an age before insurance. Don reminds them that Jesus too worked in an artisan's shop. And from this comparison, he warns them to seek Christ in heaven and not to rely on material goods. 
His audience on that occasion included the London aldermen, the richest men in the business community, and the orphans of Christ's Hospital, the most vulnerable people among the citizens. This was a lesson that spoke to them directly. Dunn's father, as we have heard, was a London businessman who left a young family when he died. This way of reading the Bible to unfold meanings that could be applied personally and immediately is also very visible in Dunn's meditations. In Meditation 8, the king sends his physician, and this begins in Don a series of thoughts about the way the Bible talks about God and kings. Although Psalm 82 says to kings, ye are gods, kings suffer from sickness like other men, and Don tells us no man is well that values not his well-being. In Meditation 17, Don thinks of 1 Corinthians 12, 27, now you are the body of Christ. And this prompts him to consider the universal nature of the church. All that she does belongs to all. And this then leads to his famous declaration that no man is an island entire of itself. Don spoke of the connections between Christians often. His 1619 Whitehall sermon reminds us that we are all wrapped up in the second Adam, in Christ. Good preaching in Don's age was an art of communicating conviction. Don had to exhort his hearers not simply to agree, but to take up and live the message that he taught. He did this partly by relaying to them his own belief in what he said, and partly through his rhetorical skill. Don was a master of this vehement preaching. He could represent in pictorial and in sensual terms the emotions of fear and love and awe that he sought to rouse up in his hearers. And we see this in the Easter Spittle Sermon. He encourages his hearers to picture Christ's face from its initial beauty to the brink of putrefaction on Good Friday and then to glorification in the repetition of the word light at the passage's close. Dunn's fellow poet, Thomas Carey, wrote that Dunn's preaching could the deep knowledge of dark truths so teach as sense might judge what fancy could not reach. What I think this means is that Dunn taught in a way that made dark truths seem tangible, immediate to the senses, sense might judge what fancy, what the imagination could not reach. I think only a failure on our part to read attentively would make us think that Don used prose as a less vivid medium. Yeah. 
from a sermon preached at the Spittal upon Easter Monday, 1622. Be therefore no strangers to this face. See him here that you may know him and he you. See him in the preaching of his word. See him in the sacrament. Look him in the face as he lay in the manger, poor, and then murmur not at temporal wants, and doubt not but that God hath large and strange ways to supply thee. Look him in the face, in the temple, disputing there at twelve years, and then apply thyself to God, to the contemplation of him, to the meditation upon him, to a conversation with him betimes. Look him in the face in his father's house, a carpenter, and but a carpenter. Take a calling, and contain thyself in that calling. But bring him nearer, and look him in the face as he looked upon Friday last, when he who was fairer than the children of men was so marred more than any man, as another prophet says, that they hid their faces from him and despised him, when he who bore up the heavens bowed down his head, and he who gives breath to all gave up the ghost, and then look him in the face again as he looked yesterday, not lamed upon the cross, not putrefied in the grave, not singed in hell, raised and raised by his own power, victoriously, triumphantly, to the destruction of the last enemy, death. Look him in the face in all these respects of humiliation and of exaltation too, and then God, upon whom thou keepest thine eye, will keep his eye upon thee. And as in the creation, when he commanded light out of darkness, he gave thee a capacity of this light when he shined in thy heart. So in associating thee to himself at the last day, he will perfect, consummate, accomplish all, and give thee the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus there. Holy Sonnet number two. As due by many titles I resign myself to thee, O God. First, I was made by thee and for thee. And when I was decayed, thy blood bought that the which before was thine. I am thine son, made with thyself to shine. Thy servant, whose pains thou hast still repaid. Thy sheep, thine image. Until I betrayed myself, a temple of thy spirit divine. Why doth the devil then usurp on me? Why doth he steal, nay ravish, that's thy right? Except thou rise and for thine own work fight, oh, I shall soon despair. When I do see that thou lovest mankind well, yet wilt not choose me. And Satan hates me yet is loath to lose me. From meditation number 17, now this bell tolling softly for another says to me, thou must die. Perchance he for whom this bell tolls may be so ill as that he knows not it tolls for him. And perchance I may think myself so much better than I am as that they who are about me and see my state have caused it to toll for me, and I know not that. As therefore the bell that rings to a sermon
calls not upon the preacher only, but upon the congregation to come. So this bell calls us all. Who bends not his ear to any bell which upon any occasion rings, but who can remove it from that bell which is passing a piece of himself out of this world? No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thy friends or of thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls, it tolls for, thee. for thee. The effect and cause, the 
punishment and sin. Seeing my name on the advert for tonight's event next to some of the world's experts on John Donne made me feel as I think Pontius Pilate might feel about the creed. Delighted to get a mention, just a little unsure as to the role I'm actually playing. So I've decided to try and respond to Donne, the priest poet, as a priest. I now work, of course, at the same St. Paul's Cathedral of which Dunn was the dean, although in a different building. And as Lord Scarborough once said, deans are like pigeons. They like to leave their mark. (laughs) And Dunn certainly did that. And what do I, as a Christian priest, make of it? It was one line in Dunn's poetry that got me hooked on him for life. I came across it in his Holy Sonnet 19 when I was at school and trying to work out something of who I was and what I wanted to be and incidentally not making a very good job of it. Over 20 years later, I'm still engaged in that same project and the line still captures, Oh, to vex me, contraries meet in one. It seemed then, as it seems now, that the contraries of being human are quite overwhelmingly complex. Nothing is less self-evident than the self. I have to add to that the contraries of being a priest. For a priest, The relationship with God, not God as an object that you can pin down and dissect, but God as the subject to whom we relate most deeply and peacefully is the most important relationship of all. And I think Dunn knew what I have learned, that to be ordained is to try and help other people have that relationship with God that you only wish you had yourself. And like any relationship of worth, it can be the most turbulent. I now see the opposite of faith is not doubt, it is certainty. And although us clergy can look pretty smooth and together in our black suits and our collars, there's no business like holy show business. For many of us, this relationship we call faith is a very unsettling business that can be reverent one day and very rebellious the next, devotional in the morning, deadened by dereliction in the late hours. Nothing can mask the face of God so much as religion, and yet it is in the beauty and space and poetry and ritual of our religion 
that the poverty of mere relevance has been exchanged somewhere within for the deeper draw of resonance. That's why poetry keeps my priesthood alive and John Donne has helped through my ministry in keeping me honest about these things and more than honest, also unashamed because these things are more important than being seduced by a quick clarity and soundbite theology. So he refers to his riddling, perplexed, labyrinthical soul, to the maze of corridors in his breast. The confusions are creative, truth-seeker and self-seeker, the passionate lover of women and God, ambitious but so aware of death, apostate but admired preacher. I'm drawn to this fragmented, improvised soul, and I'm grateful he could speak of it before I began to understand it. To vex me, contraries meet in one. As riddlingly distempered, cold and hot, he writes, my devout fits come and go away like a fantastic ague. It is Dunn's exquisite gift in communicating his own experience that I am grateful for as both human and clergyman. As you read him, you often feel something coming to birth in you. That's good literature. Then as a priest who enjoys preaching and who has the privilege of spouting off up there quite often, I'm endlessly struck by Dunn's language and images. I know that he sometimes tries to be a bit too clever. As somebody once said, the problem with John Dunn is his brain rather went to his head. (laughs) But when he gets it right, he strikes pure gold. And as preachers know, trying to find a language for God, a vocabulary for this soul, is a tricky call. It seems to me he kept two important strands together. He was unafraid to reason. He was unashamed to adore. And his sexual and his spiritual energies, his perplexed and pastoral heart, his longing for the immortal in time that wastes us away, these all provoke the most poignant and memorable phrases that I often find myself using in my own preaching. He can bring thy summer out of winter, though thou have no spring. In heaven, it is always autumn. His mercies are ever in their maturity. That music of thy promises, not threats in thunder, may awaken us. O blessed, glorious Trinity, bones to philosophy, but milk to faith. And then there is that honesty again. He could, he said, neglect God and his angels for the noise of a fly, for the rustling of a coach, for the whining of a door, 
a memory of yesterday's pleasures, a fear of tomorrow's dangers, a straw under my knee, a noise in mine ear, an anything, a nothing, a fancy troubles me in my prayer. As Dunn himself said, it's not the depth, nor the wit, nor the eloquence of the preacher that pierces us, but his nearness. Dunn feels very near to me as I listen and admire. Finally, a priest is going to want to know in all this honest experience and well-crafted language what's actually being said. What did Dunn believe? Well, there's no obvious system of thought. Again, something I'm very pleased about. Instead, there's a sort of vision with clear features. He very much acclaims God as Trinity. That is, he refers to the sociableness, the communicableness of God, and that this should unite all Christian people, for only our love hath no decay. He says at one point that the Trinity is undermined by seeing, quote, Christians scratch and wound and tear one another with ignominious invectives and uncharitable names of heretic. How lucky we are to have moved on from all that. He also stresses the need for prayer, that appetite that feeds in order to make itself more hungry. The pulse of faith is longing, not arrival. And prayer must be about God and not us. Churches, he writes, are best for prayer that have least light. To see God only, I go out of sight. Dunn also stresses the need for saying sorry for the gift of tears. And then there is his belief in the grace of God the soul of his soul. He asks that his iron heart may be drawn by this grace. Human beings cannot heal themselves. Only a love from outside can love them back into life. So it is with the soul, he writes. Truly to me, this consideration, that as his mercy is new every morning, so his grace is renewed to me every minute, that it is not yesterday's grace that I live now, but that I have my daily bread, my hourly bread, in a continual succession of his grace, that the eye of God is upon me, though I wink at his light and watches over me, though I sleep. So this priest standing here is very grateful to the priest and dean, John Dunn. Clergy never really like being together and comparing themselves too closely. It's very threatening because we often feel the others are doing it better than we are. Like a congress of masseurs, no one ever wants to turn their back. <laughs> but with John Dunn, I'm willing to say yes, God demands our deepest and most demanding searches, 
and this being human does as well. Take me, he says to you, imprison me, for I except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. These dun-like searches into the divine and human are too important to be literalistic in. And if my soul feels full of corridors and my belief ebbs and flows endlessly, then the comfort comes when I open my arms in the vocative as a priest to offer prayer. Something then slips into place. I am there in Dunn's image to the newly ordained Mr. Tillman to open life, not close it off. A lesson, perhaps, for today's church, if ever there was one. I suppose Dunn has taught me that God is a magnetism of mystery and might well be in this world as poetry is in the poem and that a life can be worse spent than pursuing the footfalls of this intuition that ultimately reality might be trustworthy. Holy Sonnet 19. Oh, to vex me, contraries meet in one. Inconstancy unnaturally hath begot a constant habit that when I would not, I change in vows and in devotion. As humorous is my contrition, as my profane love, and as soon forgot, as riddlingly distempered, cold and hot, as praying as mute, as infinite as none. I durst not view heaven yesterday, and today in prayers and flattering speeches I court God. Tomorrow I quake with true fear of his rod. So my devout fits come and go away like a fantastic ague, save that here those are my best days when I shake with fear. Holy Sonnet 10. Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkst thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. From rest and sleep which but thy pictures be much pleasure, then from thee much more must flow, and soonest our best men with thee do go, rest of their bones and soul's delivery. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men, and dost with poison, war, and sickness dwell, and poppy or charms can make us sleep as well, and better than thy stroke. Why swell'st thou then? One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. A hymn to God the Father. 
Wilt thou forgive that sin where I begun, which is my sin, though it were done before? Wilt thou forgive those sins through which I run and do run still, though still I do deplore? When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. Wilt thou forgive that sin by which I have won others to sin and made my sin their door? Wilt thou forgive that sin which I did shun a year or two but wallowed in a score? When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. I have a sin of fear that when I have spun my last thread, I shall perish on the shore. Swear by thyself that at my death thy sun shall shine as he shines now and heretofore. And having done that, thou hast done. I fear no more.
Thank you for that appreciation. On behalf of Perth in the City and St Paul's Cathedral, I would like to thank all our guests tonight. Peter McCulloch, Mary Morrissey, Mark Oakley, Joe Shapcott. Also, our, our readers, Rosalie Jorda and Tom Deverson. And again, our wonderful musicians, Andrew Carwood and... Uh